Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Employment Law Matters, which is the first of two episodes on how to defend a sex harassment claim. In this episode, you'll learn about the employer's statutory defence and what reasonable steps you should be taking as an employer that can give you a defence from being vicariously liable for the acts of your employees. But first, from a person with no social life, thank you very much to Estine50 for leaving this review on the iTunes charts. Fantastic podcasts. A colleague recommended I listen to these podcasts a few weeks ago, and I ended up spending my weekend listening to the entire series to date. Thank you, Estine50. And if you're willing to waive anonymity, send your name and address to podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk and we'll send you a copy of one of my HR books. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. The employer's defence, which is more commonly and correctly known as the statutory defence, is the defence that employers use if they're trying to avoid vicarious liability. So, in other words, avoiding being automatically liable for any act of harassment that their employees do. It's pretty vague. It's in Section 109 of the Equality Act 2010. And it says that anything done by a person, that's the harasser, in the course of the harasser's employment must also be treated as done by the employer so the employer is automatically liable for anything done by a harasser in the course of the harasser's employment. Now, if you don't know what the phrase in the course of employment means, you've got three options. Number one, join the club. Number two, go to an incredibly dull hour-long lecture about what's meant by in the course of employment and hear lots of ifs and buts and caveats. Or option number three is just take it from me that it basically means Everything is always in the course of employment unless the harassment happens at a Christmas party in a pub 50 miles away from work, organised by somebody who has nothing to do with work whatsoever and there are no senior people there. Short of that, it's probably going to be in the course of employment. So anything done by a person, the harasser, in the course of employment is treated as also done by the employer making the employer automatically liable. But, and here's the employer's defence, section 1094, quote, in proceedings against the employer, it is a defence for the employer to show that it took all reasonable steps. Just pausing a moment. It says all reasonable steps, not some reasonable steps. That it took all reasonable steps to prevent the harasser from doing that thing. Now, the statutory defence is rarely invoked and it even more rarely succeeds. It's rarely invoked because employers generally know they're not going to be able to establish it. It rarely succeeds because tribunals hate allowing employers to establish it. They don't like letting the harasser's employer off the hook and requiring the harasser to pay, I'll use the word the victim, the victim compensation out of the harasser's own pocket, because looking at the way the harasser's dressed, the tribunal can probably tell he can't afford it, and they don't want the victim to be left without a remedy, so tribunals rarely allow this defence to succeed. But if you're an employer, what should you be thinking about when you decide whether you want it to succeed? Well, 
First of all, let's assume the victim has left the business because most victims of sexual harassment, not all, but most, leave the business before they bring a claim. In that case, the company might not want to show a lack of support for the harasser by throwing him out to the wolves and saying, nothing to do with us, we took all reasonable steps to stop him. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. The main reason is you're probably going to want to run the most common defence in a sex harassment claim, which is, it never happened. He was never using innuendo after innuendo after innuendo. She misunderstood what was going on. That's the most common defence. It's the he said, she said defence. And if you as a company are running that defence, it doesn't really gel well with that to say, but if he did, we took all reasonable steps to stop it. You can theoretically argue both, but it doesn't go down well with the tribunal. The second reason that you might not necessarily want to run the statutory defence is you'll probably need separate representation because there'll be an immediate conflict of interest. And that means either you as the employer have to pay a second set of legal fees for the harasser's lawyers, and that could be expensive, or you've got to trust the harasser not to go off and find himself some really rubbish lawyers, which can cause other problems if those other lawyers don't do a very good job. But what do you actually have to do to show you've taken all reasonable steps to stop the type of conduct complained of? Well, what I'm going to tell you here, and there are seven steps, are a minimum. A tribunal might say they're not enough, but if you don't do these things, you've got no chance of winning. So you've got to have a policy that does the following seven things. One, it complies with the Code of Practice on Harassment. Two, it identifies what is considered as unacceptable behaviour or unwanted conduct. Three, it provides the mechanisms for raising complaints of harassment. Four, it contains guidance on how to question complainants appropriately. Five, it's readily accessible to all employees and managers. Six, it provides for strict confidentiality. And seven, it's a living document, one that's regularly reviewed and updated. Your policies have got to comply with those seven points. If they don't, you're not going to be able to establish the statutory defence. The policies can't be hidden away in a drawer. They've got to be immediately accessible. People have to know about them. People have to be trained in them. So everyone has to be trained in the basics. Don't go around using sexual innuendo on your work colleagues. But as well as that, managers have to have additional training in dealing with harassment if they spot it or dealing with a complaint if they receive one. The training's got to be kept up to date. If it's not up to date, it's useless. We've all had tribunals where a manager says, I had lots of training in anti-discrimination law. And the follow-up question is always, when was that? 17 years ago when I joined the company. Well, that's useless. The training's got to be refreshed every couple of years. And it doesn't need to be in a big lecture room. Get managers to listen to a podcast like this or issue it by way of e-learning or a four-page summary or a refresher issued in writing or by email to managers who have e-sign or get them to reply to say they've read and understood it. But there's got to be some form of refresher training and a record that they've gone through it. Now, you shouldn't insist an employee has to lodge a formal harassment complaint. Some 
employers think to show how seriously they take harassment complaints, they tell complainants, we want you to lodge a formal complaint, then we'll investigate it. The problem is, although it comes from a good place in the heart, tribunals don't see this as a good thing. Tribunals see that as putting a barrier in the way of investigating a harassment complaint. So if you'd say, we're not going to investigate informally, we'll only do it formally, tribunals don't like that. Do you know the difference, by the way, between an informal investigation and a formal investigation? Have a guess. I'll tell you in about 60 seconds at the end of the podcast. Offer a buddy. Have someone designated in the organisation, ideally named on the policy, whose identity is promoted publicly, who can be the go-to buddy for someone who thinks they may have suffered harassment. Because sometimes people just aren't sure. Have I misunderstood that? Did I get the wrong end of the stick? Did I cause it? A lot of people self-blame in harassment situations, and having someone to talk to who's not necessarily a union rep, because not everyone's a member of a union, or isn't a workplace colleague because some people might not want to tell their friends, is a good step to show that you're taking all reasonable steps to stop harassment. Continuing with how to defend a sex harassment claim, in next week's episode, I'll show you strategies for preparing a sex harassment case for tribunal broken down into nine simple steps. I asked you, by the way, just a moment ago, if you knew the difference between an informal investigation and a formal investigation. Well, it's the letters I-N because you should be investigating. If you're doing an investigation, do an investigation. Putting the word informal or formal before it doesn't really make a difference. If you do a lacklustre, hapless investigation, you're not going to get your bacon saved because you've called it informal. A tribunal will still jump all over you. Do investigations properly. Treat them seriously. Have a look at my book on employee investigations for a full guide on how to do it. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe at www.danielbarnett.co.uk slash podcast and leave a review on the iTunes store telling me what you think. I read every single review and every week at the beginning of a podcast episode, I pick someone who's left a review, uh, read out the review and send them a book as a thank you for their time. Listen up carefully as well, because next week I've got an announcement to make. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.